This morning we begin our study on the five solas of the Reformation. We'll study sola scriptura. It's Latin for scripture alone. Scripture alone. It was the word of God that made the difference with Martin Luther. His conscience was bound by the word of God. The Catholic Encyclopedia to this day says of sola scriptura and sola fide, faith alone, that were justified by faith alone, are, quote, the, the two maxims in which the contrast between the Protestant and Catholic teaching reaches its highest point. So the Catholic Church says, the two points of doctrine that we disagree with most with Protestants, that's us, is Scripture alone and faith alone. So what does it mean? What does sola scriptura mean? And what do we mean? Scripture alone. Scripture alone what? what what's the context of that, that phrase? Now before we get into the Word of God, there's actually a lot of presuppositions we have to examine. We need to address these presuppositions about the Word of God before we understand the Word of God. Now let me just ask a question to you. What is this book to you? When you see this book or think of the word Bible or think of reading it, what goes into your mind first? Martin Luther feared God. He feared the judgment of God. And that was a presupposition he had when he came to reading the Word of God. For other people, this is just a book. This is no different than the Quran, no different than Shakespeare or O. Henry. It's just another piece of literature, fascinating literature with interesting stories. Obviously, somebody with that attitude is going to read the Word of God differently than somebody like Martin Luther. Are you ignorant of it? Is this just a book? I don't know what to think about it. Some people don't even know what the word Bible is. What's a Bible? Are there truths in this word? Say you have a little bit of understanding, but are there truths of this word that you're ignorant of? That if you didn't have that ignorance, your opinion of this word would change. You see? Suppose that you really found out what it really teaches. So do you know what this word really teaches? All this comes into play with your understanding of what the Bible is. Is this just, and here's a big one with the Catholics, is this, this just a part of the revelation of God? Is this word of God set alongside with uh, church tradition and church authority uh, or continued revelation of the Holy Spirit? Is this just part of how God talks to you and He talks to you in your heart and soul and mind and then you sit down and you listen for God and you listen to God that way or God speaks to you in dreams and visions and you have dreams and visions in your own heart and the Word of God. So you see, there's all these presuppositions that come into play with the Word of God. Is this just any other book full of errors and bad redactions? Or is this book here the very voice of God speaking to you. All of these understandings come into play with how you view this book. And certainly before you ever open a page, before you ever learn to read, there are other truths that come into play. Even if you're ignorant of these truths, before you ever read the Bible. 
Our subject is sola scriptura. But sola scriptura must be understood in light of all the other solas. They all go together and they all demand one another. Without an understanding of each one of them, if you are ignorant about one aspect of the five solas, that will affect your understanding of all the others. You have to understand sola scriptura in light of sola gratia, sola fide, sola de gloria, gloria, sola Christos, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, by faith alone, by grace alone, by the word of God alone. All of that comes into play with your understanding of this scripture. Just like all five points of the tulip, which we're going to go over after we get through with the five solas. How they all demand each other. They are a chain. Any one of the five points of Calvinism, of the acrostic tulip, demands, if you want to be consistent, demands all the others. And if you're wrong on one point, that will necessitate an inconsistency in the others. So let me ask you a question. The difference was Martin Luther feared God and he feared his word. Where did that fear come from? The Pope didn't fear this. Pope Leo X didn't, couldn't care about the word of God. Why did Martin Luther fear God and why did he have a fear of his word? Why did he have a fear of his law? Was Martin Luther just more spiritual than the Pope? Was Martin Luther smarter than the Pope? The difference between Martin Luther... Johann Tetzel, or Leo X, was this, God's grace alone. It was the grace of God alone that began to turn Martin Luther's heart to fear the judgment of God. And it was His grace alone that God finished that work in relieving that fear and Him believing the gospel. The five points of Calvinism come to play here. The difference was God's grace alone. By His grace, He prepared Luther to receive salvation of his soul by instilling in him a sense of the fear of judgment. The fear of God and His judgment is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You see that very, very evident in Martin Luther's life. If it were not for the fear of God, he would not have built everything else upon that fear, all the works of the gospel and his understanding of God and salvation and truth. You see that lived out in the life. Pope Leo X had no fear of God and he acted like it and lived like it. Sold off church uh, authority. Gained money, greedy of money. Living luxuriously. It's not very much, not, he didn't portray very much of the fear of God, did he? Total depravity is a truth that you have to reconcile with before you read the Word of God. Total depravity is a truth that you have to understand when dealing with other people about the Word of God. We have, we have an understanding of the presupposition that when we go to present the Gospel, present the Word of God, we're dealing with a dead sinner. We know something about them that they themselves do not know. They don't know that they're dead in sins and trespasses. They don't know that their carnal heart cannot know the things of God of itself. Romans 3.18, by nature, it says that there is no fear of God before their eyes. The natural man has no fear of God. They fear certain aspects of God, but it has no true fear of God. Romans 8.5 says this, For they that are after the flesh, and by flesh it's what you are by nature, what little John is, he's flesh. 
What they are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity, is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. So when we go to witness, we know we're witnessing to their carnal mind that cannot be subject, it cannot submit itself to the law of God. It is not possible of itself. It needs something from outside of them to draw them to the Word of God to fear them. That is what our text says in Romans 8 here. The Spirit. The Spirit has to come upon them to turn them, to awaken them to their condition, and instill in that cold, dead heart a living fear of God. But with the natural man, there's an inability to do anything spiritual before regeneration. So therefore, as somebody who's spiritually dead, somebody who's unregenerate, what are they going to think of the Word of God? What are they going to do to the interpretation of the Word of God? And what are they going to do to those who try to promote the truth of God? I tell you, there's people at work I think are, are just clearly demon-possessed. You go witnessing enough and you will meet people that are demon-possessed that just hate the gospel. I would tell you the time some of my co-workers just spazzed out the time I quoted a Bible verse to them. From Exodus 20, thou shalt not kill. They flipped out, literally. Okay. But without the grace of God coming into them and God being merciful to them, they will never love God. They will never fear this word. So then Luther of himself and his natural will cannot generate the true fear of God. And God left him in that condition to wallow, to try to. The natural man can mimic a lot of uh, true graces. Uh, the book of Hebrews talks about tasting of the Holy Spirit, tasting Christ. But Christians eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ. We assimilate Him into who and what we are. So if you taste and you don't swallow, what you, spit, you have to spit it out. That's what they do. They taste it and spit it out. Spit God and His Word out and His religion and His truth. Because they're opposed to it. It doesn't taste good. They don't want it. We see God, Christ, and His flesh and blood giving us eternal life like the Lord's Supper is a picture of. But to do that, we need the grace of God. So you see that there's a wonderful providence working in Luther's life before his conversion and causing him to seek safety from the wrath of God. He created a yearning, a strong burning. For years he let him wallow in doubt and confusion and misery. So that way when he did find that salvation, he was going to hold on to it ever so much. He felt that he was forgiven much, therefore he loved much. And because of that great love that God wrought in Martin Luther, he was able to stand faithfully against the whole world. It was Martin Luther just so spiritual that he of himself could do that. Who gets the glory from the life of Martin Luther? Certainly not Martin Luther. God left plenty of infirmities in Martin Luther for us not to uh, trumpet him as our superhero. We don't worship Martin Luther. But we look past Martin Luther to the grace of God and the sovereignty of God and what God did to revitalize the gospel in Europe. Sola Scriptura defined. This is certainly... Uh, 
I guess what I'm trying to say is, I read a tweet this morning, that you have to let the whole of Scripture speak before we formulate any part of it. So you have to understand theology before you can understand the Bible where that theology is contained. Because we read truths in the Scripture like total depravity, like irresistible grace, like this whole setup here is not for the glory of the Pope alone to kiss my ring. And when you talk to the Pope, you have to, on the phone, up until they... uh, up until the 50s, 1950s, I believe, when you talked to the Pope on the phone, you had to be on your knees. It's not for the glory of Christ's church we will build St. Peter's Basilica. It's for the glory of God alone. It's by Christ alone, not Christ and His church, not Christ and His mother. It's by Christ alone and His sacrifice. All that comes is taught out of the Scriptures. So what is sola scriptura? I haven't even told you what it is. I've just told you two words, sola scriptura, so let's define it. And this is very important because there are a lot of misconceptions and there are a lot of people that hate sola scriptura. I know as Baptists, that's kind of confusing. Who would hate? I mean, it's the Bible. Lots of people hate the doctrine of sola scriptura. But So let's define it. And When we define it, you'll see why. That the Word of God is the only infallible revelation of faith and practice. The Word of God is the only infallible revelation of faith and practice. The Word of God is true and without error. Therefore, we may trust it completely. It is authoritative because it is the very Word of God and carries the authority of God Himself. And it is sufficient for everything necessary to be accepted by God for salvation and to walk before Him. But in short, you can say, the Word of God is the only infallible revelation of faith and practice. Notice what I did not say. I did not say it's the exhaustive rule of faith and practice. But it is sufficient and infallible. Uh, I guess turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is the probably the most popular verse to try and prove. Uh, the essence of sola scriptura. 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 15. And that from a child that has known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, through faith which is in Christ Jesus, all scripture is given by the breath of God is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be mature, perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The Scriptures are able to save you, to make you wise into salvation, and they provide everything you need to please God in your daily walk. They are able to give you reproof and correction, and they are able to give you instruction in righteousness. That is the, in essence, what Sola Scriptura says. Nothing else in existence, in theory, can do that infallibly. That is, without error. The Scriptures can do all of that without error, without anything being wrong about it. Now, let me tell you what Sola Scriptura is not. Sola Scriptura, the Scriptures alone, are not the only authority. Okay? 
It is not the only authority. I just got done telling you, Romans chapter 8 says that the Holy Spirit is necessary for the Word of God to have a saving effect. The ink and the paper is just ink and paper. It is not the Word alone. I'll tell that to the Church of Christ. They have doctrine that they literally call the Word alone doctrine. That the Word alone can save somebody. Romans chapter 8 clearly stated that that's not capable. So we're not saying that the Scriptures are the only thing in the Christian life. That's a, a misrepresentation of sola scriptura. We live in a world that has multiple layers of authority. Magistrates, parents, employers, etc. And they each have their realm and we have to obey them in their realm, don't we? We have to submit to them in that area of authority. And there is some authority in tradition. We do look to our Baptist tradition to help us in our faith and practice, don't we? And there's some authority in church leadership. Bishops are overseers. Bishops have rule in the church. Bishops are, have authority in the church. There is some authority in following the leading of the Holy Spirit. You, you, you try and follow the Spirit as He leads and guides you. But all of these sources are traditions, church authority, church leadership, your own thoughts about what the Holy Spirit's trying to tell you are all fallible. They, they, there's some, there have been some bad traditions spring up in Baptist churches, haven't there? Every head bowed, every eye closed. We wouldn't want to scare somebody off from salvation by looking at them. The devil votes for you to go to hell. Jesus votes for you to go to heaven. And it's time for you to cast the tie-breaking vote. Pass out the ballots to everybody. Let's see who's going to get saved. Let that happen for a hundred years. And that becomes a bad church tradition. And now if you don't have an altar call or invitation, you're some kind of a new heretical idea and how are people going to get saved? When that tradition is only 130 years old, started by an arch-heretic. So church traditions can be wrong. They can kind of grow and sneak up in the church and you don't even realize it. And it goes by and you don't pay attention. And next thing you know, 50 years later, you have this church tradition. Nobody knows why or how or where. And the Catholic Church was full of that. You think Baptists were bad. The Catholic Church had it up to there. They were drowning in it. Especially because they relied on church. They put it on equal terms with the Scripture. To them, church tradition was the voice of God and carried the authority of God. 90% of all opposition to the doctrine of sola scriptura is really, really weak. They can compound it and they can have a hundred different arguments, but 90% of it's all the same thing. 90% is just me guessing about it, obviously. But what they try to do is say that there are other authorities that exist, therefore sola scriptura cannot be correct. Well, what about you need the church, you need te church teachers, you need people to instruct you in the Word of God and all that. And we're not saying we don't need that in the church. God instituted it in the church. What we're saying is that yes, there are other authorities for the Christian, but all of those are fallible. Only the Word of God alone is infallible. Therefore, when the Catholic Church starts to teach you that one of their dogmas... And by dogma, I mean something you have to believe as a Christian, literally. That, and I read it this morning, that faith is not a requisite for good works. The grace of faith is not necessary for morally good works. Or the Miriam dogmas. 
Mary ascended into heaven. Mary was a perpetual virgin. Mary never had a sin nature. When those start crowding into the church, they can be as they obviously are fallible and wrong. The Word of God alone is not fallible. Therefore, we can test everything else that is every other authority must be tested against the Word of God. All of these authorities must submit to the authority of the Word of God and they have no right to come alongside the Word of God. Not even the apostles had authority of themselves, but their authority must submit to the Word of God. Peter and Paul and James and John had no right to contradict the Scriptures, even if they were writing the Scriptures. Jesus had to submit to the Scriptures. So this idea that church tradition has an authority or that there's an oral tradition that carries just as much authority as the Word of God is clearly false. Do you know, as the, the, the Catholic Church loves to proclaim that there was an oral authority, they will say that the apostles taught the Miriam dogmas that Mary didn't have a sin nature and she ascended into heaven and she intercedes for the world and we can pray her and she's the, the uh, conduit of all graces to mankind. They just didn't write it down. It just came through the churches, through the oral tradition and therefore we have to believe it because the apostles taught it. You know, the very first thing we find in church history written by the early church fathers which claims an oral tradition from the apostles was that the very first thing we find in all the church history, and it was the uh, the mid-200s, I think. I, 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 I don't remember. I don't even remember the author. Uh, it'll, it'll come to me later. But the very first supposed oral tradition from the apostles was that Jesus was crucified at the age of 50. That's the very first tradition from the apostles. Church tradition says Jesus died at the age of 50. Scripture says he was about 30. Who are you going to believe? If they're equal in authority, uh, what are you going to do? Split the difference and say he was 40? No, you say, the scriptures say he was about 30, supposed to be about 30, so he was 30. Get that 50 stuff out of here. I don't care who you think taught it, you're wrong. The scriptures aren't wrong. The scriptures are not exhaustive. By scripture alone, we don't mean scripture only of itself. It's not exhaustive. The Word of God does not contain every detail to make every decision in your life. But it is infallible and it can give you the framework infallibly for making every decision in your life. So it's not the idea that we don't need these other aspects of church life. For example, what I'm telling you now is not written in the Bible anywhere, these, these exact words. Sola Scriptura is not that you just read the Bible to people. That's actually unbiblical. The Bible says God appointed teachers. But what are the teachers to teach? The Word of God, not our own invention. The Scriptures are not... Here's one. The Scriptures are not the essence of Christianity. Understanding the nature of the Bible is not the essence of Christianity. Now, you have to bear with me uh, for a second as I explain this. The purpose of preaching is not to get you to have a high opinion of the Scripture. That also is unscriptural. I mean, you want a high opinion of it, but that's not the goal. We use our high opinion of the Scriptures to arrive at the high opinion of something else. 
which is Christ and the gospel. The scripture is not the essence of Christianity. Justification by faith alone is the essence of Christianity. You can be justified and have some wrong thoughts about the scripture. You can be justified before God and think, you know, I don't, I'm not too sure about the epistle of James. That's a right strawy epistle. Now, it's not good to say that. You're wrong for saying that. But the blood of Jesus Christ can forgive you of that ignorance and of that sin. But if you're wrong about faith alone, sola fide is the, the, the pillar of the church. It's the foundation of the church. It's a, the, the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Now we arrive at the doctrine of sola fide through the scripture. So you see, the scripture itself is not an end of itself. The scriptures point to the beginning and the end, which is Jesus Christ and His work in the gospel. And it points you to have faith in Jesus Christ. John 5.39 says this, Jesus said, Search the scripture, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Jesus said, you search the Scripture, not just to know the Scripture, but you search the Scripture to find eternal life by finding its testimony of me. And that's the end goal of the Scripture. That's the essence of Christianity is Jesus Christ. The Scripture helps us get there. John one forty five. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The Scriptures teach about this man Jesus. Come, see him. That's us today. We all need to be Philip's telling everybody, come look at this Jesus whom the Scriptures teach about. Hebrews 10.7 Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Jesus speaking prophetically in the Old Testament, quoted in Hebrews. He said, In the volume of the book it is written of me. And that's the purpose of the Scriptures. The Scriptures alone tell you infallibly about Jesus. Not tradition like He was born in a cave and in His birth there was a great big light and then Mary was just skinny and there was a baby Jesus standing up talking. We don't need church tradition of Him healing little birds that had died and, and doing goofy, stupid stuff. How can you know that's right? Why, just because somebody said so? But if God says so, that's a whole lot different. Sola Scriptura applied. How do you apply Sola Scriptura? Well, Martin Luther gives us an excellent example in applying it. Martin Luther saw the authority of the church had differed from the Word of God and was incompatible with God's Word. Popes and councils could be fallible. Tradition could not be trusted. You know, we actually have a recent example here of uh, Pope uh, Benedict, I believe it was, uh, before uh, Pope Frankie. Pope, uh, Pope Benedict recently, uh, when, when he was Pope, rejected the doctrine of limbo that was taught for every 800 years in the church. Now, if something was taught in the church for over 800 years, couldn't you... Well, I mean, doesn't that seem to you that would be kind of church tradition? That sounds like church tradition to me, doesn't it? But the, the Catholic Church is, is sneaky in this. And I'm, I'm just using the Catholic Church as an example because they are the clearest distinction of, of what I'm talking about. But you can apply this to every denomination and to every person. Okay, so I, I, don't, I don't mean to be Catholic bashing, but they're just the easiest example in this idea. So the Catholic Church taught uh, 
the idea of limbo. What limbo was is, what about all the poor little babies that don't get the saving grace of baptism? Well, they don't get, that's too mean for God to send them to hell, so he sends them to limbo. And it's a place of happiness, but they're not baptized, so they won't be with God. But they'll just live forever, not in heaven, not in purgatory, not in hell, and just kind of limbo. And uh, Ratzing, uh, uh, Benedict said, no, they just all go to heaven, forget that. And so now it never existed. No, 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 no. And they say, well, wait a minute, we've been teaching this for 800 years. And they'll go, well, the magisterium didn't give its official approbation and dogmatize this teaching. So, uh, uh, we, we, those scholastic differences. So they just undid 800 years of church tradition and said, nope, we don't believe that anymore. Well, okay. Well, if they had stuck with the Word of God, they never would have arrived there in the first place. But if... Pope Benedict went and said, we officially don't believe that now. The church would continue teaching it. When, when there are different voices, limbo, no limbo, uh, Miriam Dogma, when all these voices are present in the room, Luther went with the loudest voice, the voice of God. The only sure way to know what God says is to read what He said. To read what he says. Now let's look at, uh, we will uh, look at Jesus' attitude about the Word of God. Jesus' attitude about the Word of God. One resource I looked up online, uh, I didn't go through the time to verify every single one of these, so uh, take it with a grain of salt. It looks about right, but it says that Jesus quoted from the Old Testament 78 times from 28 different books. I don't know if that's counting all the uh, repeated times in the different Gospels, but uh, that, that sounds about right to me. He acknowledged the Old Testament was the Word of God, and he expected men to submit to it. For Jesus, the Word of God was the end of all arguments. Jesus said in Matthew 5.18, Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So the law of God is not going to go away until it accomplishes what God intended for it to accomplish. Matthew twenty four thirty five: Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. John ten thirty five: He said, The Scripture cannot be broken. The Scripture cannot be broken. Matthew twenty two thirty one: But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read? that which was spoken unto you by God, saying... Now here's Jesus talking to the Pharisees. And he's going to quote from the Old Testament. It was written 700 years before Christ. And it's written in the Bible. And Jesus tells the Pharisees that this is God speaking now at this very moment to you. Do you see this book as God now speaking at this moment to you? Not God spoke a long time ago, God said this, but God says this, He's saying it, and will say it. Jesus even made large observations over the simple tense of the word. Turn to Matthew 22. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God, which are one and the same. For in the resurrection they neither marry, nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read 
That which was spoken unto you by God. I just quoted that, didn't I? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And he's basing that on I am the God of the li- of Jacob, of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob. I am the God of these men. And by that, he infers that these men are living in the presence of God. Not I was their God, but I am their God now. So Jesus had confidence that the very tenses of the words he was reading were infallible and correct, and he could make make large assumptions, large doctrinal assumptions based on the simple tense of a single word in the Old Testament. That's a high view of Scripture. That ought to be our view of Scripture. But Larry, how many times do you just find richness in a in a in a tense of a simple word in the Scripture? It's it's just amazing to study sometimes the implications of single individual words and the power that they contain. The apostles followed in their master's footsteps and submitted themselves to the word of God. They corrected each other with the word, and they constantly appealed to scriptures themselves, even in their New Testament writings. It was almost as if they based the authority of their New Testament God-inspired writings from the Old Testament as they constantly and consistently and hundreds and hundreds of times quote the Old Testament and base their doctrine on the Scriptures from the Old Testament. They acknowledged the Old Testament was the Word of God, and Paul also made large arguments based on the singularity of a word. Galatians 3.16 Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not into seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. They submitted their teaching to the Old Testament. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, that is every doctrine, every teaching, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. And what's the only infallible rule of testing the teaching of somebody but the Scripture? What are you going to do? Be like Joseph Smith tells you to do? Joseph Smith tells you, go and pray about it and wait for that burning unction Is Mormonism true? Is the Book of Mormon real? Lord, let me know. Okay, I guess it is. I think I feel God telling me it's real. That's literally how they defend the truth of their convictions, the truth of their teaching. Just pray for a burning unction of the Holy Spirit. I'd prefer to base it upon the infallible God-breathed Word. There was the famous Bereans of Acts 17.10. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who, coming thither, went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble than they, those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. Lastly, we trust that the Word of God, the Word of God teaches that it has its own power. It has the very power of God, the promises of God. The power of the Holy Spirit is behind the Scripture. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture, preserved the Scripture, blesses and anoints men to teach the Scripture. God is invested in His own Word. This is His Word, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, takes that name, that, that, 
that title upon him has. Jesus is the Word of God. So, and so much that some theologians would not call him the Son before his incarnation, but would say he was the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity, then at his incarnation became the Son. I reject that. But there are some sound theologians in other respects that hold to that position. And all that's to say, what God's attitude of His own Word? He already read that the God-man Jesus had the highest view of Scripture possible. The Word of God has its own power. The Spirit enlightens the mind to take hold of the Word of God and changes the heart to believe and conform to what was written. Paul told Timothy that they were able, the Scriptures, the scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Not you take the Scriptures and get smart enough and then you get saved, but the Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. How many people have been converted by the reading of a simple tract? How many people have been converted sitting in a motel room flipping through a Gideon's Bible? The, God, the power... The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. How many people were converted while not even trying to get converted? Somebody says something about the scripture. John Bunyan was converted just listening to two women talk about the scripture and the gospel. He was applying his trade as a tinker and he just overheard two women talking. He went home and was thought about what they said and he got saved. The gospel just kind of happens to people sometimes. There's the famous... Pronouncing of the word of God to the valley of dry bones by Ezekiel, which preaching of the word brought them back to life. The word of God has power to not only save, but to sanctify. Listen to what Jesus said in John seventeen seventeen: Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. Jesus in his high priestly prayer prayed to God from heaven, to sanctify us by His Word. Jesus didn't pray, now people, you take the Word of God and you make yourself holy by using the Word of God. He didn't say that, did He? He prayed to the Father to do a work upon us with the instrument of His Word. That is power, people. Power to sanctify you. To set you apart from worldliness unto godliness. We see the effect the Word of God had upon Jeremiah when he was discouraged about the apostasy in Israel and just wanted to give up his teaching and preaching and prophesying and warning and begging and pleading and crying. And he just had enough. Jeremiah 20 verse 9 then said, I, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. It was done. But the Word, but his Word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing, and I could not stay. The Word of God had lit a fire in Jeremiah. And even though, mostly to his effect, he saw he was vain trying to teach the people to put away their idols, he couldn't stop. The Word of God had taken hold of him. May I say that this Bible is the very Word of God. And everything in it, including the promises of the law, are true. And you will be judged by the law of this book. God will not slack one jot or tittle of this law against you of your sins. And just as every word and promise of judgment is true, so also is the promise of the gospel true. And just as you can be sure that God will punish sin, God will bless with grace to those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is an infallible statement. 
The gospel presented in this book is infallibly given to you and it is infallibly right now, this moment, God speaking to you. That whosoever will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. That's a promise of God. You can believe that with your whole heart and mind and you can believe it forever and ever and ever. And no matter what anybody says, you can believe that to be true because God said it in His Word. Let's pray.